This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 118 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented actors of his generation, a young man who has killed it during his first decade on the silver screen, Andrew Garfield. The 33-year-old American-born Brit made his big screen debut opposite Robert Redford, Tom Cruise, and Meryl Streep in Redford's 2007 drama, Lions for Lambs, which he followed with the 2007 British indie Boy A, the 2008 head trip The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, and the 2010 adaptation of Kazuo Ishiguro's bestseller Never Let Me Go, before taking his career to the next level with his portrayal of Eduardo Saverin, one of the co-founders of Facebook, in another 2010 film. The Aaron Sorkin-ridden, David Fincher-directed drama The Social Network, for which he received Best Supporting Actor Golden Globe, Critics' Choice, and BAFTA nominations. I first interviewed Garfield back when he was promoting The Social Network some six years ago. And over the time since, he starred on Broadway in Death of a Salesman, picking up a Tony nomination for his work as Biff, in big studio blockbusters, namely 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man and 2014's The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and in a terrific 2015 indie called 99 Homes. This year, Garfield has taken his career to the next level, with outstanding performances in two acclaimed films for major directors, both of which called on him to play a man of faith in crisis. In Martin Scorsese's Silence, he's a 17th century Jesuit priest who travels to Japan to minister to Christian converts. And in Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge, he's a World War II conscientious objector turned live-saving hero. For the latter, he's already won the Critics' Choice Award for Best Actor in an Action Movie, was nominated for the Critics' Choice Award for Best Actor, is nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Drama, and now looks like a strong bet to land his first Oscar nomination in the category of Best Actor. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Garfield and I talk about the fortuitous series of events that led a shy and sensitive theater kid to his first big screen opportunity, the lessons he learned from working with the likes of Redford as well as the late Heath Ledger, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Mike Nichols, the heartbreak he experienced over the corporatization of the Spider-Man films he had so looked forward to making, and the extensive spiritual studies and physical sacrifices he undertook for both Silence and Hacksaw Ridge. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Andrew, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. We we always begin with just a basic form question. Where were you born and raised and what did or do your folks do for a living? Okay. I was born in Los Angeles, California at Cedar sinai Hospital <laughs> on August 20th, 1983. And I was raised after the first two years, two and a half years of my life. I kind of realized that L.A. wasn't for me. So I moved to, um, I kind of upped and (laughs) moved my family to England, to a little suburban enclave called um, Banstead in Surrey. Yes. And it was a much more peaceful time for me. I just got too heavy into the L.A. party scene. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I was all strung out very, very quickly. So I I learned young about this city. Yes. And and my father has done a, f- a few things in his life. He was an accountant. He then was an entrepreneur and a businessman and had this lampshade company for a while. My mother had a lot of lives as well before becoming a f- kind of full-time mother and, and housewife mm-hmm. in that very baby boomer kind of period. But she's kind of an artist, my mother. And so is my father, but he's never done it professionally. He's a, he, he, his first dream was to be a writer, mm. kind of a, like a screenwriter. He had a moving company in Los Angeles and he would drive past all the studios and kind of peer in romantically imagining what was going on in that dream factory. And he's a huge movie movie buff and movie fan. And ultimately, he's a swimming coach now. He's okay. a pretty successful, pretty wonderful swimming coach. So you mentioned that he was was into movies. Did Were, were movies introduced into your life at a, at a young age? Yeah, that was that was really our church it was our kind of Sunday ritual was we'd go up to Hyde Park, first of all, in, in London, if it was uh, during the summer when mm-hmm. we'd play baseball. He had this kind of expat baseball league that he was a part of. Me and my brother would be on the sidelines riding bikes and playing and like kind of like skateboarding and eating kind of picnics with, with our mother. And then we'd go and go to this kind of uh, American expat restaurant on the King's Road called Henry J. Beans. It was all kind of trying to transport all of that Americana (laughs) to London, which was gave me kind of a unique experience of England. And then, yeah, then we'd watch movies for the rest of the day. That was really it. And we'd make, he'd he'd make a lot of home movies too. He was, Mm -hmm. he's a frustrated filmmaker (laughs) and I was a terrible actor in these films. But also I remember you saying you were a very sensitive kid and, and sort of had a desire to express this. So how did, how did the first acting opportunities or just even things for fun come about? What were they? I, I you know, I made, we made movies with uh, me and my friends in high school. We would make kind of mockumentary films based on genres. Like, you know, we'd do James Bond films or Guy Ritchie <laughs> films or kind of murder mystery, 
uh, horror. My friend Ben Collins and David Morris, they had this company called Bouget Productions, which is the French way of saying budget, <laughs> which is a, a kind of an English way of saying crap. Right. Um, <laughs> but they were actually really good. There. And, and Ben's now a filmmaker and David works as a visual effects artist in um on like the the biggest the biggest films out there he does all the marvel films and the last jungle book and yeah he's uh yeah so it's 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 interesting where we've all ended up but for me it was really theater i saw a play when i was 16 my first ever theater experience i went and saw a play called mnemonic Mm -hmm. by a company called teatro de complicite simon mcburney's company in, in, in england this this incredible devised piece of theater and i felt like my mind fell apart mm. in a really good way and I th- all the walls kind of fell down and something in me woke up and that was really the first time I think I understood that it was a possibility. Who was Philip Tong? Phil Tong. <laughs> my first drama teacher was Mr. Tong at City London Freeman School and just he, he kind of arrived in this very serendipitous moment for me where I was about to decide what I was going to study for my A-levels my last two years of high school and drama was not a an option in my mind at that point and he he was the new teacher that just came in and I just happened to be doing a school play and he saw he saw me and he said you should study with me next year mm-hmm. and I have I have the rest of my life to thank him for that really putting me on the path and he was the one that brought me to the theater and nudged you towards going to drama school mm-hmm. yeah and said you know you're not going to get in first first time around so be prepared for that mm-hmm. and here's a um, Here's a speech. Here's a Hamlet speech. Here's a an Edgar speech from King Lear. Let's let's work on it together, and we'll try. And I really, if you if you don't get in, we'll we'll try next year. That's what the way it happens. They'd like people to have a bit more life experience before they allow them in. And so I was very very prepared for disappointment. Mm-hmm. And then I got into the Central School of Speech and Drama, which was my first choice. I felt it's I felt part of the University of London. It is, yeah. yeah. And you know, Judy Dench went there, and I think Olivier might have trained there. Wow. And, Gael Garcia Banal, to a more modern actor. And I just really liked the feeling of the campus and the teachers. And I surprisingly got in first first time. And I kind of took it as a sign that maybe maybe this, this, this was where I was supposed to be. How did your folks feel about you going off to study that? Because at that point, you're sort of setting yourself on that professional trajectory, probably. Yeah. Were they always on board with that? No, and <laughs> rightly so. Right. I mean, what a, what a, it's like, you know, pissing <laughs> in the dark. Like, what the hell kind of decision is this? It was so out of the realm of possibility for, for, for all of our imaginations, you know. And of course, you know, like later on, I obviously learned that my dad's dream was, was to be a, a writer. And he is a, he's a, he's a very imaginative, talented guy. So I understand his fear and his reservations about me attempting something off the beaten path, something that was financially in, in unstable and incredibly competitive. And so I really don't blame him for the, the fear that he was trying to instill yeah. in me about <laughs> it. And I think actually it probably helped me. It helped me in terms of working as hard as I possibly could, being so aware of how competitive and difficult this profession is. And I, I really thank him, actually, for, for giving me the, the, this kind of propelling force. And he's coming out tomorrow to, to come and hang out. So he'll be seeing oh, the great. Scorsese film this year, oh, this week for the terrific. first time. And I think that's a he's obviously been a he's of Scorsese's generation. So I think he really he, he grew up with Scorsese's films. So I think there's something very, very special yeah. in, in, in that. My, my my mother was someone that was always always wanted just me to be happy mm-hmm. you know he, she she was less concerned with 
my survival and more concerned with my happiness. Right. So I had a really nice balance. I had, you know, two parents that, you know, really kept me in, 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 in good balance. So as you started at the central school, were you happy? Were you, did it click right away or it took a little period? I think it clicked right away, actually. I felt like I had come home. The great thing about British drama school is you have three years of incubation and you're in a vacuum, really, where you get to play, try, fail, study. And for me, I was exposed for the first time really to Shakespeare and to Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, to restoration comedy, to the you know, Shakespeare's tragedies, Shakespeare's comedies. And it's it was an incredible education in storytelling mm-hmm. and uh, in, uh, an awakening for me of the importance of storytelling in my life. Uh, you know, in a conscious way, and in all of our lives, I, I really started to understand it as an art form, and as a necessary thing. But it's a really. Uh, I was thinking about this recently with with friends that I studied with. There's not a place for us after that drama school period where we can be in an environment where we get to fail mm-hmm. and fall freely and therefore grow mm-hmm. as actors. You know, you over here there's the actor's studio and there's a bunch of great teachers out here as well and other studios. But in England, in London, I'm not aware of there being a place where you get to go and go to the gym, mm-hmm. you know, work on the muscles that are atrophying, you know. If we're, if we're lucky enough as actors to get work, we, we then, you know, get a guest appearance on a procedural show <laughs> and, you know, you have to do all your work under these glaring lights with two takes at the end of the day and then we, we run out of time and everyone goes home and that's it. There's not much opportunity for that expansion and that kind of... So I, 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 I'm, I'm interested in trying to create a space like that. Yeah. Lest anyone think it was all easy sailing, you know, glamorous all the way through. Did you have other jobs while you were at Central School? I did, yeah. I, um, I worked as a barista at Starbucks mm-hmm. in Golders Green. And then I was fired and I was sent to <laughs> a lesser branch in Hendon, which was attached to uh, Sainsbury's grocery store. So all day long, there was no customers because the coffee boom hadn't really happened in London. At what that did point. you do to get fired? I would just sit down a lot and kind of because we didn't have many customers and I would just kind of sit down and they would say, why are you, you're not allowed to sit down? And I was like, I don't understand why I'm not allowed to sit down. Everything is is, is, is spoken for. Everything right. is done. There's nothing for me to do. And, I'm, and my legs hurt. And I, and I do not understand this. That was my big rebellion right. was sitting. Howard Schultz hopefully is listening. We can uh, change their policies. <laughs> so while you were studying there, I guess it would have been maybe your third year of the three, you got your first professional acting gig, right? Mm-hmm. What was that? Yes, there were two plays that I was signed on to do just before I left drama school. One was called Mercy at the Soho Theatre, and the other one was a play version of Kess, the Ken Loach film, mm-hmm. where I played Billy Casper up at the Manchester Royal Exchange, which is still remains my favourite theatre in the world. In the round, right? In the round, and it's um, in this old corn exchange with this pod in the middle of this great cavernous room, and it's the most intimate theatre space I've ever seen theatre in and performed in, and there's really no separation between the audience and the performers. So... You won the Manchester Evening News Theatre Award for Best Newcomer for Kess. You were doing some other uh, stage work, a little British TV, mm-hmm. and then, including, we should say, Doctor Who. We should say yes. That. Let's let's know. <laughs> but then it's then it's 2006. You're doing Chat Room at the National Theatre. That's got to be a very big deal. And mm-hmm. what is it that, if you can connect the dots, happened there that 
led to your first film opportunity? I can connect the dots very easily. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to give thanks to those that connected these dots. I was doing chat room, this incredible play by Ender Walsh at the National and the Cottesloe uh, with a tremendous company of actors, including Doctor Who, Matt Smith, mm-hmm. before he became Doctor Who. And Andrea Riseborough was also in these shows with me and... Yeah, it was a really, really interesting, exciting time. These really great plays. And Stephen Daldry happened to be casting something, a film version of the book, the Michael Shaban book, Cavalier and Clay, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. He was doing it in London, and he was putting a screen test together. His assistant at the time, I don't know whether they're still working together, Mm -hmm. had seen the plays and had told him, Stephen, to come and see. And he did. And he asked to meet me and we met on the South Bank and he said, I'm going to send Scott Rudin to come and see these plays because I need him to sign off about testing you for the for the one of the cousins in this um, in this film we're going to try and make. It was all incredibly exciting. (laughs) It was all pretty surreal to me. And Scott came and saw and gave his approval. And then the next thing I know, I'm on I'm really doing my first camera work. That was the first time I'd really been in front of the camera, I think. No, maybe I'd done a little bit of TV before that. Had you ever even really aspired to have a screen career? Or were I you... mean, there's always the, the, the pipe dream, yeah. but there's never the, I never had the assumption. Mm-hmm. But as soon as, as, soon as this mm-hmm. happened, I thought, you know, suddenly that part of my imagination opened up more. And I thought, well, is this possible? Mm-hmm. I was very green. I was very, you know, innocent and kind of, you know, just appreciative of being in work. It was a pretty blessed time psychologically speaking everything was just just brilliant mm. you know um, <laughs> and kind of bright and possible right and then so i went and did the screen test and it was with these phenomenal actors that i had looked up to so much like ryan gosling wow. and killian murphy and jamie bell and ben wishaw jason schwartzman and you were screen testing with them yeah so there was these if you, if you know the book yeah. there are these two roles there are these two cousins one's from i believe poland and one is from New York City, and they kind of create this comic book together. It's, it's during World War II where mm-hmm. kind of the, the first um, you know, great comics were kind of created. It's just a beautiful book. Ultimately, the film never got made. But yeah, we, so we would alternate roles, and everyone wow. would kind of pair up. It was a two-day screen test, and wow. I think it, it cost a bit too much money. <laughs> but we had sets, and we had, an, I think, we had, I think we, we, there was an incredible cinematographer that was there. Mm. It was a really incredible couple of days where I, I, I was learning. I remember especially with Ryan working, doing the scenes with Ryan Gosling. I had never seen, I'd never been present for his style of acting. It definitely felt like the like I was with a method actor, really, in the in the truest sense of the word. Someone who was living the part and someone who, not in a kind of indulgent way, in a way of own, owning everything and not knowing what was going to happen in the next moment. And I was like, that's, that's what turns me on. Mm-hmm. And, I, and he was so generous with me. Mm-hmm. And I really felt very excited by all of the spontaneity and the, um, the kind of the, the danger. In, 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 there was no acting required with him. I could just pay attention and respond mm-hmm. as I felt. It mm-hmm. was kind of incredible. So these screen tests go off. The movie, nothing materializes, but the but the test itself moves on to other people. Is I, that- I guess the test gets seen by this incredible casting director, A.B. Kaufman, who was casting the Cavalier and Clay film, who happened to be casting Robert Redford's film, Lions for Lambs. Mm-hmm. So A.B. really was my champion 
for for this for this movie and really worked hard to convince Redford that I was the one. Because what they were looking for was a, a student who would be playing this sort of an unengaged student with the uh, with the war in Iraq. This was gonna ends up coming out in two thousand seven. So basically, next thing you you hear from Avi, I guess that this this one with Audrey's not gonna work out, but Redford needs to meet with you. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little insane. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Just crazy. And so I made I think I went out to screen test with him and he's just, you know, such a that was incredible to meet to meet him, uh, a hero of mine. As an actor and as an activist and as a philanthropist and as a life, you know, a life so richly lived. And you kinda go, Well, how did I end up here? So I screen tested and ultimately he, he decided that I was the, the best person for the job. And so that was it. And then I was kind of off to the races, I guess. Yeah. And for a first movie, you're working with Redford, Tom Cruise and Meryl Streep. That's not, uh, not many people can, can no, compare to that. But it's a really spoiling thing. Right. It's like, where do you go? Where do you go from there? Right. And, and so that was, I guess, almost exactly 10 years ago. Right. And so now let's just continue to make our way through the now the the film work so you are in the midst of doing that i believe is when you got cast in boy a which is this great british indie john crowley who i think people now maybe know more brooklyn and other Mm -hmm. stuff Mm -hmm. but how did that work you weren't doing them simultaneously right but you would that you went right into that i I also i auditioned for it out in la and i sent a tape to john john immediately kind of thought that i was had the right quality for this very sensitive, tender, kind of traumatized boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was like, that's it. <laughs> that's, that, that amount of trauma is perfect. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I very quickly said yes and kind of thought, well, I don't know, it was, it's weird. It was one of those roles, not unlike the role of Billy Casper in Kess, mm-hmm. there's this kind of tender, feral, raw man-child quality that I, I I don't know they were the roles that I was really drawn to when I first started out and and yeah so I, I went back after Lions for Lambs and started shooting with with John and and I uh, and Peter Mullen who is one of still remains one of my favorite actors mm. directors and people mm. you know and and John himself such a Again, so uh, he really guided me through. It was my first, obviously, my first lead yeah. performance as a, a screen actor, which was daunting to say the least. Really, not knowing what I was doing in in terms of uh, calibrating a performance. So while you're working on that, Lions for Lambs comes out, I believe. Mm. And while Lions for Lambs maybe wasn't a hit, it put you on a lot of people's radar. Mm. How did it change things? Is that why? Other Boleyn Girl and Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus and some of those things that came right after. Mm. Is that what brought those about? Other Boleyn Girl, I'm not in. You got it? <laughs> yeah, I'm not in it. I was like, in, I'm blurring the background in one shot. So that's, okay, so that's... <laughs> Take what, it off my eye. Yeah, get it, I know, right? <laughs> um, and I think I even shot that, I don't know when I shot that. I can't even remember. I've kind of like erased it out of my mind. I, all, all I remember is being there for one day, very early in the morning, very, very green, very excited. Right. And I'm in my costume, my tights and my kind of, <laughs> kind of uh, buffoonish hat and all this, you know, the ruff around my neck. And I'm all ready and raring to go fully made up. 
And then Eric Banner and, and uh, Natalie Portman and Scarlett Johansson kind of saunter in for rehearsal wearing their kind of sweatpants and whatever. And I'm feeling so uncomfortable. And like the, the, the guy that got dressed up for the fancy dress party that actually wasn't a fancy dress party at all. I misread the invite. And they're all so casual about what they're doing. And I'm literally like, guys, can we take this fucking seriously? This is a fucking big deal to me. I just got cast in a fucking movie, guys, for Christ's sake. Anyway, it was incredibly humiliating, but ultimately I'm not in it, thankfully. Well, hey, lost, but you're definitely in Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus, which has got to be, I mean, it is a, it's a strange movie, Fair right? right? <laughs> yes. I remember watching this, and, and actually, if I recall, that came out after the very untimely passing of Heath Ledger, right? Mm -hmm. Who was your principal? He, he, he passed away during shooting. During Halfway shooting. through, yeah. I mean, I guess, what did you make of... of Terry Gilliam, what did you make of of Heath? Mm -hmm. I, I vaguely remember you saying that you you did take away a lot from the way he worked. Mm. Well, Terry, I love and I remain loving, and we see each other on occasion, and I ad admire him so much in all of his insanity and creativity <laughs> and uncompromising nature. He's a he's a hellraiser, and I mm. love that. And in terms of Heath, I just looked up to him so much. I think, and I remember meeting him and trying to act as if I wasn't impressed. <laughs> it was that level of kind of just really ad admiration, I guess. Mm. He was very generous with me. He was very uh, inclusive of me in the process. And I still, you know, whenever whenever Brokeback Mountain is on TV, I'll, I'll, I'll keep watching it. Mm. Just because he's doing something that's transcendent in it and you can't put your finger on it and there's some there's something magical happening in his face, in his being, and yeah, I, I uh, of course echo how everyone else feels, which is devastated that he's not here, mm -hmm. and devastated that he's not here, uh, of course, on the personal level, but on that level of the work that he could be giving us, mm -hmm. because he was a singular, singular talent. After that, I think the next big one would have been Never Let Me Go, which, if I remember... Well, let me just first ask that. I mean, that was a high that was a high profile adaptation. It's a big book, mm -hmm. and you're with some great actresses in this. Was was that? Did that feel up to that point like the greatest responsibility in a sense that you'd had in a in a movie? Felt different. Different. There was something that shifted there, I think, because of Kazuo's book, and that it was such a beloved pre existing material. And that it was, you know, I admired Care, I admire Carrie and, and Kira so much. And at that point, I was an unknown entity as an actor in the in the you know in the industry. I think there was something that was shifting, but mm -hmm. in the in the in public, I was very much a kind of just an actor, which is a, a nice place to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I felt very, really just grateful that I got to play that part it's such a gift of a part again this kind of raw feral vulnerable <laughs> kind of uh, uh, traumatized right. young man <laughs> kind of seemed to be the my type the way the um, way they read you <laughs> yeah yeah so but and and the process of that was pretty wonderful with mark romanic who i remain close with and love very very much and and wasn't it mark romanic and also for reasons you can explain spike jones who mm -hmm. basically advocated for you to David Fincher, which led to The Social Network. Mm, yeah, that trilogy, <laughs> my my 90s music video director trilogy <laughs> is, uh, is a wow. good, that's a good period of my life, <laughs> for sure. 
to go from so I, so Spike Spike had been a hero of mine since before I knew who he was because I used to skateboard as uh, a kid. Yeah. And I would watch his videos not knowing that they were Spike Jones videos. I would read magazines that he was like Big Brother magazine mm-hmm. and Big Brother videos that he was a part of that I, without knowing that mm-hmm. it was Spike that was behind them. <laughs> and then of course, you know, the commercials that were part of my psyche and my generation's psyche same with the music videos i mean it's endless the creativity that's come out of this man is just an endless thing so i felt like he he was a part of me spike it's this crazy thing and then of course you know with his movies being john from being being john malkovich onward it's like oh yeah you get you get it you get me you you are expressing something that i haven't expressed right i think that's why he's he's so he's such a genius and so mark knew this that i was crazy about spike so Spike was cutting Where the Wild Things Are in London while Mark was cutting Never Let Me Go in London. And one day he said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be meeting my buddy Spike in a park in London. Come and meet us. Come and hang out. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, nope. Hell no. Hell fucking no. And like, I literally had to drag myself there because right. I was so terrified. And then, of course, it was like meeting my older brother. As soon as, you know, we were playing Frisbee doing, he, he was making me do handstands <laughs> in the park and catching Frisbees between my legs. And he was like, like he had his guitar walking around the city in the summer and he was, we were making up songs together in elevators. And then he was also developing this short film, I'm Here. Uh, at the time, he had this little kind of like clay, clay figures that he was playing with trying to create the robot head shape at that time. And I was like, what's this? He was like, oh, it's a little short film I'm kind of trying to do. And like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then like a, two weeks later, he was like, do you want to, do you want to, do you want to be the robot? And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> and then that was just surreal to me. And he, uh, he, and that was really the first time that I had input into a script as well. He kind of, he's such an amazing collaborator. He brought me into, so he wanted my ideas about how to make the character deeper and kind of a bit more precise and detailed and, and then he, he, lo and behold, he used all the ideas, or most of them. And that was just a dream come true, working with him. And then, yeah, then, yeah, the, Fincher was then casting, putting together the social network. And to have, I think, both Mark and Spike in my corner meant meant a great deal for, for David, obviously. Because um, at that point, David, when you first heard about this, I, I guess my understanding was that you believed that you knew it was it was a movie about the founding of Facebook. Yeah. And you thought that for a long time that you were looking at playing Zuckerberg, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as you first hear about this possibility of of now collaborating with Fincher, mm-hmm. how did that evolve to the point where you are you met with him, you audition, whatever, and then you find out at the last minute that it's not even what you thought you were going for. Mm. I think yeah, I mean I don't think he knew until he found Jesse. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding anyway. So I read the script and I have to say the script is the best screenplay I've ever read. Sorted. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote something so entertaining and, and it's what you see and that's what it's, it's what you see on screen. Mm-hmm. And that combined with, with, with David's vision and the way he dealt with the actors and the performances and every single detail of that film. It's, it's two masters at the, at the top of their game as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I I read it and I and I and I was told I was auditioning for Mark and and I I worked really hard to be that person and kind of shut off my emotions as much as possible and <laughs> and I think it, David thought it worked 
And Aaron thought it worked, but then they met Jesse and they were like, this works better. <laughs> <laughs> but weirdly, in some ways, it was when they now shift the thinking to maybe you should be Eduardo, having been in, in Mark's headspace might have been an advantage, right? Very much so, yeah. I think the and David David's very sweet about this. He's like, why would I use you for an unemotional character when... Maybe your strongest asset is your access to emotion, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Yeah, all right, I get it. <laughs> um, I'm I'm a I'm a pretty fucking erratic again with this kind of sensitive, traumatized, uh, rawly wild animal thing." Um, but you know, yeah, I think that one of the keys to Eduardo was compassion, was was empathy, mm-hmm. and understanding Mark. He he was the one person that felt like he really could see beyond the character Mark's idiosyncrasies and oddness. Like he really felt like he was the protector of this odd, weird <laughs> being. And yeah, to have auditioned and to have attempted to get into that, to the headspace, of course, was a, was a, a great starting point. So it was a very intelligent design ultimately. Coming back to what you were just talking about, let's just go off on a little aside. You, last time we did this six years ago, you said, quote, sensitivity is something that I hate within myself but also I know that without it, I definitely wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't need to. I guess, where, what's the root of that? I don't know. I, I, it's, I think some people are born a certain way. I think we're all born mm-hmm. a certain way. And I think I like the idea that our, great, our greatest wounds are our greatest gifts. And so my sensitivity, I think it gets me in so much trouble and also <laughs> enables me to, I don't know, it gives me, it, it gives me a tremendous amount of you know wonderful things in my life as well it means that i can connect deeply to things i think whether it's other people characters i play the struggles of others uh, i don't know i i but in the been in, in the same breath it means i can i can just as easily connect to stuff that really fucks with me <laughs> i'm very permeable in that way right. so but but the good news is it's nice hearing that quote because i'm my attitude's changed a lot mm. and and i i can hear the boy saying that and I'm like, oh, you poor kid. But right now, I think from that, I've understood this in a, mm-hmm. in a deeper way. And I'm like, you know what? It is a, it is a, a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. And also, I can now protect myself yeah. from, you know, it's just, it's just growing up. It's just becoming a bit more aware of who you are and, and, and what you need and, right. and what you don't need. And, and you know, so it's, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm glad that I've, I've shifted from that perspective. Yeah. I, I don't hate it at all. I love it. <laughs> So I I remember this two or three week period in the fall of 2010 when at the Toronto International Film Festival and then the New York Film Festival, you were everywhere because that's when Never Let Me Go was unveiled and then when Social Network was unveiled. And I just wonder how much that one-two punch kind of changed things for you in terms of the businesses and the public's level of interest in you. Was that a big, did you feel that shift over that fall i did and, I, and it felt good it felt very representative of me and and my my soul and the work that i want to do in the world i really love those films it makes a huge difference of course working with these tremendous directors on stories that are very meaningful and personal and mean a lot to a lot of people you know that never let me go people like i get that m- more than more than other things actually it's mostly people are very moved by that story and that's a a really wonderful thing so I felt in a that kind of optimum place where I I was known enough to get great work right and not known enough to be hassled (laughs) well not even hassled but just kind of like uh limited right by by being visible 
It was, yeah. You made some very interesting decisions at that moment too, which is the moment where you you really do set the tone for what, as people are getting to know you, you can make or break a, a career. And I think the two things, I don't know which commitment came first, but it was so interesting to me that on the one hand, you commit to doing The Amazing Spider-Man, which mm-hmm. I know for reasons we can discuss was a, a more personal thing to you than it might have been for just, it wasn't just let's do a big franchise. But the other thing was, let's go to Broadway and let's go do Death of a Salesman with Philip Seymour Hoffman for Mike Nichols. And, mm. you know, you're not going to get rich doing that, but that's going to be a fun and I'm sure very enriching mm. opportunity. So just those those choices that you then made right after. Yeah, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it takes you back. The, the amazing Spider-Man choice... Oh my god! It was like I I did, I did forty I did like a hundred laps of a racetrack just trying to figure out what the hell to do with that, because I because I knew that it would it wasn't a choice that I was going to make lightly. I wasn't certain. I wasn't sure that I that, that that's where I wanted to be because I knew that it would lift profile in a certain way, mm-hmm. and I really I hadn't read the script. They wouldn't show me a script, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is. You know, I, I, hey, I, 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 you know, I, <laughs> I can't blame anyone about that. I knew what I was stepping into. I knew I was stepping into it a bit blind in that regard. And the reason for that was that you just loved this character. My choice to do it, I think ultimately I got to the point where the, the four-year-old inside of me would not have it any other way. <laughs> And I think I ultimately made the right decision because I would have regretted it for the rest of my life if I didn't know what that experience would have been like. If I, I would always be wondering, God, what if? Mm-hmm. What if? How, how, how could you turn down the opportunity to play this character that meant so much to you when you... It was the, my first bloody Halloween costume. <laughs> Who am I to say no to that? It right. was absolutely the right decision. And so it was... 2012, The Amazing Spider-Man, and then again, 2014, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Mm-hmm. And my sense from listening to you now and also from what I've read and other things is that the idea of what it would be was different from the reality. And and yeah. perhaps that was because of just the nature of the business today, that, that, that the things that you've always responded to in your other projects that we've talked about, the value, the importance placed upon story and character and things like that can get smothered by corporate concerns. Is Mm -hmm. that a fair way to explain it? Sure. I think that's fair. I don't think that's a bad thing to say. I think it's the truth. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, there's really beautiful things in those films, I think. There's beautiful, artful direction. There's, by Mark Webb, there's incredible acting by Emma Stone, Sally Field, Martin Sheen, Dane DeHaan, Jamie Foxx. There's, like, tremendous work in those films. I think no matter what, no matter how much great work is happening, there is a a thing above that which has to be in control. Mm-hmm. And it's the filter that all of that work moves through, which you know, the which is we want we need everyone to see this. Mm-hmm. So we we have to we have to make sure that no one gets turned off. Right. The least objectionable route, right? Yes, yeah. which is a, just a different mindset. It is more of the corporate mindset, which I'm not poo-pooing, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just kind of stating as a, a fact. And it was definitely hard in, in that regard for me because of that three-year-old in me. Mm-hmm. 
actually. It wasn't anything to do with with me, weirdly. It was the three-year-old in me and the three-year-old in that, that I felt like I was representing in everyone. That I, I had to fight really, really hard to make sure that the character was honoured and that we were offering something really fun, entertaining, and also moving and complex and deep for all the young boys and girls out there that want to see their their favorite superhero so there was it was really the responsibility that i felt that i had to keep fighting for those things which was tiring so based on the way the experience played out as you've described just now mm-hmm. and knowing what came with that with meaning the sense that you yes you did your profile did grow immensely and so you're now probably having to deal with additional kinds of crap that you didn't have to deal with before you including having your personal life at that time be more you know scrutinized and all of that knowing what the experience ended up being would you do it again or or was it something that it's more just a lesson a cautionary lesson i had to do it i, I had no choice I, I knew i realized that it was it was inevitable that i was going to do that and so many as i said so many beautiful things came out mm-hmm. of it i met i met someone that remains incredibly important to my life mm-hmm. on that you can fill in the blanks about who that is mm-hmm. you may be at the oscars together this year <laughs> who <yeah>. knows <laughs> but either way there's there's also the difference between how i felt when never let me go and the social network were coming out and how i felt with the amazing spider-man franchise was that i i didn't feel represented mm-hmm. i was feeling very represented by those other two films mm-hmm. And with the Amazing Spider-Man stuff, I didn't feel like it was my work up there mm-hmm. in a weird way. Mm-hmm. It felt like a, a semblance of it or a, a kind of a, a shade of it. But ultimately, I felt like it was you didn't enshra- have ownership. It was enshrouded in, yeah. as I said, that filter. It was all through this kind of gauzy filter that that took away some of the, I don't know. I just didn't feel, I didn't, I didn't recognize my work. So if there could be any way of cleansing the spirit after that <laughs> i would think that it would be 99 homes oh interesting i thought you were gonna say death of a salesman was that performed before you filmed the first Sp- amazing spider-man no it was in between ah so that would that would that be was, one very nice way to cleanse the that was spirit. the <laughs> fucking like the chemical peel palate cleanser col- right. colonic so that was that was after the first one and then 99 homes was, was after the second one and so these are the this is where you can really do what you do this is where I felt like I came home. Yeah. With Death of a Salesman, going, specifically going back to the theater with a man that became a mentor, Mike Nichols, mm-hmm. with my favorite actor of his generation, mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman, and an incredible actress, Linda Eman, mm-hmm. and Scott Rudin producing. <laughs> so it's full circle there. You know, I remember Scott saying to me, you know, after the first dress rehearsal, he... I've never seen him so impassioned about about something. I've never and I and everyone was like Scott's never never like this. He said he came up to me and said to me, "No one knows this about you. This is what this is one of the things I'm so no one knows this about you. They think of you as this misrepresented Spider-Man. <laughs> but this is like the, the, and I was like, "Okay." But but either way that aside, it was just the experience of that play and Arthur Miller, which is who's my favorite playwright mm-hmm. and his the themes that he deals with the post-capitalist post-industrial soul sickness of the everyman feels very important to my ancestry or something Mm -hmm. it feels like i have it in my 
my bones and my blood mm-hmm. in order that I have to express it. So he really, Miller for me is is kind of, he's the mouthpiece of, of all of that woundedness. Oh, that's great. And, yeah. and got a very deserved Tony nomination for that. And then, so that was after the first Spider-Man. The second one, the, the follow-up was, as, as we just mentioned, 99 Homes, which is a movie that more people need to see. I don't I hope it's mm. streaming or somewhere where people can access it because mm. it's, it's terrific, low mm. budget, but about, I mean, I think, I don't know if you're, if you ever sort of make these assessments, but I think it's one of your, one of your best performances. And Thank you. I just want to, Ramin Borani works in a very unusual, specific kind of way, right? Uh, He's was, very inspired by filmmakers like Ken Loach. Yeah. The kind of near realism style, which is, again, a nice, it was something that I wanted to work with and under those conditions I didn't want to know who was an actor and who wasn't I didn't want to know who I was going to be seeing when I knocked on doors mm-hmm. and so fork we should say for people who haven't seen it like literally you would be as a sort of a trainee of of a guy who's evicting people from their homes you would knock on a door to perform those scenes and not know who was on the other side of the door that was always the intention yeah there was sometimes where it had to be right because of scheduling things and we had to rehearse certain things but there were other times where i got to just see what occurred and some of those people were people who had actually been yes. evicted from their yes homes. and they would tell me their stories or they would act as if they you know it was happening to them again mm-hmm. or you know really going into one of the big wounds in america right now yeah. and and trying to trying to shed some light and I think it's a nice companion piece to that that great Adam McKay film, The Big Short, as well, oh, yeah. which came out in the same year. I think they 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 kind of go hand in hand. Um, yeah, that was a remarkable experience. Not to be honest, mostly to work with the great Laura Dern, yeah, who I know you love, and mm-hmm. I and I can't speak highly enough about. And again, she's become a mentor to me yeah. in a way, someone that I will show rough cuts of uh, if I'm lucky enough to be a part of that process. I will kind of I will go to her because I think she I think she knows story so well and she and she's all heart and soul and she's like that cinema is in her blood. So, again, a, a lot of gratitude to, to have her in my life now. And the Academy is going to be a better place now that she's one of your governors in the Absolutely, uh, acting yeah. branch. But, yes. So that brings us to 2016, where you've done two great films that people are going to be perhaps still catching up on, but both, interestingly enough, about people of faith and sort of facing crises. And I, I wonder, I guess just to set the scene, first of all, which of these was made first, Hacksaw Ridge or Silence? Silence was first. Silence. Yeah. And going into these, again, just for context, would, would you have described yourself as a person of faith in your own life? I definitely feel like I'm a person that seeks out some spiritual context or kind of fascinated by the mystery of all this living stuff so i'm i'm very very interested in how we make meaning as as people and as a culture and of course the main the main way of doing that is through religion mm-hmm. organized religion or the arts yeah. or storytelling painting making music some kind of ritual framework around what the hell we're doing here <laughs> just to kind of make us a little bit soothed so for me my spiritual experiences have been limited to creativity mm-hmm. and i think that when i f- first saw my first play that mnemonic play in the in, in with simon mcburney that felt like a, a, a spiritual mm-hmm. awakening in a way so outside of that i have a deep interest in mythology and indigenous practices and 
I'm, I, I would love to be a student of ancient religions. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating and I'm, I'm definitely drawn into it. I'm always looking for ecstatic experience as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think through, through, through acting work, especially with theatre, there's something transcendent that can occur between an audience and a, and a performer. It can happen between the camera and the performer, but I find it much easier to access when, the, when there's people, when there's an audience there. And so with silence, in a sense, you got that research opportunity because mm-hmm. just to to familiarize people, you're playing a 17th century Jesuit priest who travels to Japan to try to minister to Christian converts. This is a movie for, directed by Martin Scorsese. The fact that he knows who you are must have been a thrill, <laughs> let alone that that you're now going to be starring in his movie. How did how did it all come together? That's a great question. I'm trying <laughs> to think about it too much. <laughs> I was, I think I was shooting the second Spider-Man film in New York and I was sent the script by my agents and they said he's been trying to make this for a long time, don't get your hopes up, <laughs> but he's going to meet some people, he's trying to get it going again. He, he nearly has the money and he just wants to get ahead of it and meet young actors that he doesn't know much what, much about, so he's meeting about six or seven of you guys, so get ready. <laughs> and so I did, I kind of like prepared very, very long and hard to, to, to be as, as kind of present for meeting him and, and working on these scenes together. And the themes were really interesting to me. There was something about the struggle and the journey that was so extreme and so unfathomable that I, I, I was kind of fascinated by it. So I, I went in and, and we got to know each other a little bit and then we read and you know, I think his casting director, I believe it was, it's Ellen Lewis. Mm-hmm. She she had worked with Mike Nichols a lot, so I think again I had a good supporter in her. Mm-hmm. And yeah, basically I read, and and he decided that I was the right guy, and and then we were kind of just off, and I and we would start on these very deep theological discussions and personal discussions about our own spiritual beliefs or longings or questions and. From there, that was really the beginning. And you and and the others who ended up being part of this, including Adam Driver, you, my understanding is you guys all agreed to work for scale. You had a year to get your act together yeah. before going off to Taiwan to do this. What did that year entail? Because it sounds mm. like that could have been a, from what I've read and heard, that could have been a, that's as epic as any yeah. movie itself. Absolutely, and it was a year for me to take stock. I think as well, I was so excited to work with Marty that I. I said no to everything else, and I thought, well, if he's been wanting to make this for 28 years, the, the least I could do is give one year of my life to getting ready. And it was just a really a, a blessing of a year, because it was. It was a year of study and deep immersion and this exploration of all things Jesuit. And beyond that, my own spirituality, which, I, I, as we said, I've been very, very curious about exploring outside of the realm of you know storytelling. So... I studied with a Jesuit priest called Father James Martin. He was my my spiritual director, while Marty was my <laughs> film director. I, that's why I had two of the best. This this is a really amazing man that I really um, have have gotten have come to love. Over the, you know, you end up having a very very deep relationship because it's not like a therapist. It's kind of deeper than that. It's about creating your own personal relationship with a higher power, with God. If you if you want to use that word, mm-hmm. that was really my foundation. And he, and, he, and he brought me through these things, which people don't. It's hard to explain to people. They're called this Ignatian spiritual exercises. Saint Ignatius, who founded the Jesuit order, created these exercises, and they are deep, imaginative prayer meditations on the life of Jesus, where you basically put yourself in the scenes of Jesus's life throughout. 
throughout his life, even his, his hidden life, his mm. teenage years that you can imagine. And I found out after starting them, Father Martin said, you know, Stanislavski, Konstantin Stanislavski based his uh, method acting, which is the foundation of all modern acting, on the Ignatian wow. spiritual exercises and the techniques that Ignatius created. I had no idea. Carl Jung created an active imagination with the archetypes based on the Ignatian spiritual exercises. A Jesuit priest created the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> with a Jesuit priest based on the spiritual exercises. Unbelievable. Yeah, kind of crazy. And yeah. they, but, so I think all that is to, to say that they are transformational and they are deep immersions and they're not intellectual they are very experiential and further once you and you and adam driver barely know each other and next thing you're off for a week together without mm -hmm. any speaking yeah we had a we had a drink in the west village and then we went and then i went to wales and then he he came a couple of days later and i was already kind of beginning this silent retreat which I'd been wanting to do anyway. I would do that in my spare time anyway. It's a fascinating experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, he kind of he kind of comes into the lunch hall on the Thursday. I'm three days in, and I'm kind of eating, drinking tepid Welsh soup. <laughs> and you know, the the weight loss program has begun for both of us at that point. And we kind of wave at each other silently and try not to giggle for the next seven days. And then we have this very very long car ride together back right. to the airport. We can finally talk and say all that awful things that have been right. on our mind for the past week and meanwhile you must have been in a, it must not help the mood when you're both trying to drop a ton of weight yeah no yeah it's kind of interesting yeah <laughs> how's a scorsese set different from other sets and and in this case in terms of the order of shooting just i'm hoping for your guys sake it was chronological i know how rare that is but it is very rare and yeah he managed to marty managed with the help of emma koskoff our producer to to make it so that we were doing it pretty much in chronological order, section by section. There would be some scenes out of order within those sections, but each section was one after the other, which is a total gift for the, for the actor, of course. And it meant that it meant that everything was building to the climactic moment for the for for me mm -hmm. for for Liam for for everybody for everyone on the crew because it meant that I could start eating again. Yes. After that. <laughs> and that climactic moment though was that as momentous in the production of it as it seems in the story was it mm -hmm. a you know how how was that moment treated with such reverence it's a moment that marty's been wanting to to get to for however long you know his entire life i think it's a moment of accepting oneself warts and all all of one's humanity that's what it one of the ways it can be read and one of the ways I, the ways that i read it it's a moment of surrender to who you are a moment of surrender to how the world is to the chaos and the mystery. It's a moment of surrender of the ego finally being defeated, the ego finally realizing that it, it can it can it can rest and mm -hmm. it and it doesn't have to doesn't have to be God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think there was great relief, there was great emotional release, and it led you know. So we shot everything, and the last thing of that sequence that we shot mm -hmm. was the close up of the fumier, the image of Christ. That, that Rodriguez finally steps on. And it was just before the sun came up and myself and Emma Koskoff are sitting on a set of steps of the Inquisitor's office and I'm I'm finally letting go of, of aspects of the character that I've been holding on to. So I was finally able to have a conversation and break character for a while. And we were both there looking over at Marty who was in the middle of the courtyard on his director's chair with his monitor hunched over in a kind of this 
unconsciously prayerful position, looking so intently at the monitor of the image of Christ. And the sun was kind of rising and just total silence on set. And me and Emma just kind of like grabbed each other and just started kind of like crying, mm -hmm. looking at the culmination of a life mm -hmm. to this very moment. The image of Christ inside the cinema screen yeah. is Marty's life. It, yeah. It's kind of profound. Oh, absolutely. And and was the apostatizing, I'm going to the word. Apostatizing, apostatizing, yeah. Was Apostasy. that, I hope one, I hope you didn't have to do that more than once. There was some, there was, it was something interesting that happened. And of course I was very, very prepared for it, for this, for this moment. And we started on my close up. And we started the first take, and then there was a technical problem. <laughs> Jesus. I'm not going to tell you what the technical problem no, was. Oh, yeah, somebody gonna, lost gonna, their job that day. <laughs> no, they didn't. Because, no, it was just a, a, a fuck up. And right. A kind of the, and, and, but both me and Marty looked at each other and we went, Right. Like, <laughs> what, can, what you do? can you, this is, this is right. the point. We right. surrender to the things that we can't control. Right, right. right. And then we did one take, and, and, and he, he was ready to move on. And right. I said, Give me one more. Yeah. And he was like, okay. But I think he still used the first take. <laughs> the other great performance of 2016 of yours is in Hacksaw Ridge for Mel Gibson. You're playing this World War II conscientious objector turned hero. It's an amazing true story. How did you first hear about this one and, and, and the opportunity to work with Mel Gibson? I got sent the script. I think I read it on a plane and I just kind of started crying. It, just, it was just such an incredible story of a life and of a of a man who because of holding on to the truth of who he was and not letting that be compromised gave him the the courage strength and kind of divine guidance to do these extraordinary superhuman things that he literally did and we had to scale back in the movie because some of the other stuff that he did is just bloody ludicrous and you really familiarize yourself with him in in an in-depth, intense way as, as well, right? I mean, yeah. this was, th in this case, not a full year, but three months you packed mm -hmm. a lot into, right? Mm. There's a great documentary by Terry Benedict. That was my main source. I would just watch and watch and watch and pick up not only the physical idiosyncrasies, but his essence and other people talking about him. And you just, like, try and spend time with the character uh, and just let it ab be absorbed by osmosis. Obviously, a lot of work on the voice and the accent, and the physicality, and understanding where he came from. Where I visited his hometown mm. in Virginia, in Lynchburg, Virginia, and then in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he eventually retired. I visited his grave. I went and hung out at the place where he lived, walked around his grounds, the the walks that he would have done, handled the tools he would have handled. Look at the old letters between him and Dorothy, his wife, and spoke to Terry Benedict a lot, who basically was is kind of the archivist for his estate and listened to a lot of music and really got to uh, indulge in in his essence and the life that he lived and try to figure out how he got to the place that he got to where he could do this incredible these incredible acts of self-sacrifice over and over and over again in order to serve his fellow man this is a fascinating concept to me and i think aspirational story I think that's why it's touching so many people is because I think Desmond's life shows us what we're all capable of. I think we all get a hint of who we are by watching what he what he did and what we're possibly able to do within our own lives. And your experience with, with Mel Gibson, who, like Scorsese, is a person of faith, very intense guy. What was, what was he like to work with as a director? 
incredibly passionate, incredibly loving, such a good leader, and really leaves you to your own devices unless unless he needs to, to kick you up the arse. <laughs> really, really trusts you with your work, and know, he knows it when he sees it, and when he doesn't see it, you know it. <laughs> but he, he directs you in the most loving, gentle way. It's kind of incredible. He'll, he'll say things that could be read as very insulting, but he says it with this guilelessness and this right. innocence where right. you go, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'm going to do better this time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing what he's able to do. And he loves everyone so much. He make, he, he's, I think the people who know Mel are the most loyal people to him in the world because anyone who really gets to know him and they find out how beyond generous he is and beyond loving he is. So that he, he creates a lot of loyalty in people. Well, congratulations on two great performances, 2016. And, and I know there's a lot of exciting stuff for, for next year coming up. So hopefully it won't be six years before we do another one. <laughs> thanks a lot. I hope so too. Thank you, Scott, really. Thank it. you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.